Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm CJ, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Erica Fretwell about her book, Sensory Experiments, Psychophysics, Race, and the Aesthetics of Feeling. Welcome to our show, Erica. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Doing all right. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us uh, a bit about yourself before we start talking about your book. Could you... Tell us a little bit about your your background, your training. Sure. Um, so I'm currently um, in an English department, and that's my doctoral training. Um, I began as an undergraduate as a double major in English and anthropology, and in a lot of ways, my major in anthropology kind of informed the work that I would ultimately do in English. And um, it just sort of motivated me to think more broadly about particular kind of cultural constructs that I hadn't really encountered in my sort of undergraduate training in English. And so in sort of bringing anthropological histories and ideas um, to bear on American literature in particular for me, that sort of has pushed the direction that my research went into when I was in graduate school, but then also ultimately uh, the book itself and what I'm doing now. Excellent. So what exactly led you to writing this book? Did you have a a particular goal uh, beforehand of writing it? Well, there's sort of, you know, I realized that, of course, you know, origin stories are something perhaps of a colonial construct, but uh, there are sort of two origin stories um, for the book itself. Um, One sort of was this strange uh, kind of coincidence that I wasn't sure what to, to make of that deals with Francis Galton, the, the founder of eugenics. And so the book, actually, the cover of the book um, is Galton's attempt to kind of visually render the varieties of uh, sensory perceptions and experiences that he had been studying, in particular synesthetic um, experiences. So he's the cover itself is his attempt to kind of visually draw and graph out what these inner feelings might look like. Um, and so I came across this in his book, Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development in 1883, um, which is this book that is sort of famous or infamous for announcing the program called Eugenics, right? Um, Galton is its founder. So I was initially really kind of curious about what this attempt at kind of graphing out synesthetic experiences has to do with eugenics, um, in particular racial science more broadly. Um, And so in certain ways, the book really comes out of the attempt to understand what sensory perception has to do with the construction of racial difference. across the 19th century and beyond. Great. And so what, what was the process like for you to go from Galton, 
and to basically how you break down each of these senses through um, each of your chapters. Yeah. So what Galton ultimately led me. So, so that's sort of the first origin story is Galton and this weird kind of visual rendering of synesthesia in a book about eugenics. The other side of that is the very famous question um, that is associated with Du Bois, which is in the souls of black folk at the end of the 19th century, when he talks about this white friend who sort of asks, how does it feel to be a problem? And his response is double consciousness, the distinctly African-American sensation of perceiving yourself uh, through another person's eyes. So in putting together, on the one hand, we've got Galton's sort of attempt to measure and map out sensory perceptions in relationship to eugenics. And then the other side of that coin is what is the internal kind of experience of that racialization from Du Bois, right? So it's sort of two sides of the same coin. And ultimately, I sort of, that led me to psychophysics, um, who Galton and Du Bois were both very much indebted to uh, Gustav Fechner, Hermann von Helmholtz, Helmholtz, and um, E.H. Weber, uh, from earlier in the 19th century. Um, du Bois, I'm not sure if he read um, Helmholtz directly, but he certainly would have been acquainted uh, with Fechner through his mentor um, and teacher at Harvard, William James. Um, mm-hmm. And William James has his own sort of <laughs> interesting history with Fechner and psychophysics. So that sort of led me to psychophysics, which was this science in the mid-19th century that attempted to grapple with the kind of evergreen philosophical mind-body problem by measuring each sensory experience, the sense of taste, touch, sight, sound, and smell. Um, And so then psychophysics really is kind of at the center of the book in understanding, one, how the senses became racialized and sensory experience became racialized more broadly in the way that Galton would ultimately kind of use and deploy it, while at the same time understanding how those sensory experiences, taste, touch, sight, smell, etc., were also used to kind of narrate the experience of structural oppression and subjectification, as Du Bois would do, but do that from within or from below at the level of consciousness. Excellent. Yeah. My next question was going to be about uh, psychophysics. So what is it that we learn about race or racial difference as it was understood at the time through this history of psychophysics? Um, And really, how do we learn what what do we learn about psychophysics from the history of race because it feels like the the two here you've really explored not just psychophysics as a science but also understandings of the relationship between the physical and the psychological through various genres um, and literature so i was wondering if you could uh, explain a little bit about that uh, connection here between race and, and psychophysics specifically Yeah, so psychophysics itself as a science does not, it did not, as its original practitioners were kind of undertaking this science, it was not um, explicitly or overtly connected to race, right? They were, Fechner in particular, was simply trying to sort of understand, again, tackle this kind of mind-body problem 
by looking at the at sensory experiences as this kind of switch point between the object world and consciousness, the inner self, right? So it's really only as psychophysics develops this kind of vocabulary, this kind of medical metaphysical theory, really, um, as it migrates into cultural arenas and really gets taken up by thinkers like Galton, um, evolutionary thinkers like Darwin, um, science writers that are somewhat lesser known today, but Grant Allen um, was sort of a major proponent of Darwin. He wrote a book called Physiological Aesthetics that is actually very indebted to psychophysics. But so there's a cluster of thinkers in the mid to late 19th century who are kind of advancing this sort of evolutionary race science. And they're the ones that sort of import or even sort of co-opt some of this sort of psychophysical theories and vocabularies into the sort of Darwinian, Lamarckian um, narratives about race and, and, and racial development. And so that operates at the level. So a specific example of how that works is this concept uh, that's pretty crucial to the book um, of perceptual sensitivity. Um, so that's a sort of this idea that was developed by Fechner. And the perceptual sensitivity is when it's a sort of the affective substrate of aesthetic judgment. So one of the major kind of innovations of psychophysics is to transfer the study of feeling from the kind of neurophysiological domain of sense impressions to this now psychophysical domain of sense experience, right? So it's the study of consciousness from an imminent point of view. It's not simply about the nerves, right? And the, the capacity to accumulate and receive sensory impressions. It's about the mind, but even more so consciousness and the subjective internal feeling of these sensations. And so sensitivity is this capacity, this kind of unconscious or pre-conscious capacity to parse minute gradations of sensation, right? So the difference, I mean, truly we're talking about the difference between the feeling of brightness when a light bulb is like switched up from 100 to 125 watts, right? Or something as minute as that. Um, and so even though these seem like really that they are very slight, minute differences in sensation. For Fechner and others, these have really grand implications for not just theories of consciousness, but of the universe and of, of life itself. And so in any case, for in cultural context, this perceptual sensitivity, this capacity to register and respond to these slight changes in the external world via sensation becomes this sort of vehicle of evolution and civilizational progress, the more that the individual or the organism can attune itself to its environment at this kind of micro perceptual level, uh, the sort of the more evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily sort of progressive and advanced um, it will become. And so then that's when you start to see these sort of theories of racial difference really not just move inward, but just, well, inward, but dramatically inward, right? Again, to this kind of micro level of perception and that this is a capacity that is a marker of racial development, which of course, predictably, predictably right? White American Europeans um, are of course figured as having this capacity. Um, whereas 
non-white peoples have that capacity less. At the same time, it's also a capacity that can be trained. So you see this kind of program of sensitivity training, which becomes tied to eugenics, which is this idea that um, if you can train your senses to register these slight differences in the world, then that will, of course, contribute to the advancement of the species and the race. Right. So this this brings up uh, sort of these two directions, if you will, um, that you highlight in your book. So one being this top-down hierarchy of the senses, and the other you talk about in terms of an aesthetics from below. So I was wondering, before we get to the details here and the various cases uh, of your book, could you just give us a brief uh, overview of those two concepts, please? Yeah, so the top-down sense hierarchy I mean, <laughs> the long view is that it begins with Aristotle, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, that's that's a, that's a long history, but the sort of, I guess, quick and dirty overview would be that, you know, he constructs five senses to correspond with the five classical elements and then hierarchi- hi- hierarchizes those senses, um, divides them into animal senses, human senses based on their proximity to reason with, of course, vision on top. Um, and that that gets imported in the 18th, 19th century, especially um, sort of post-Locke with sort of, his, you know, his sensationalist epistemology. And so, you know, you have naturalists like Lawrence Oaken at the turn of the 19th century who basically kind of superimpose this Aristotle's sense hierarchy onto racial science, comparative anatomies, um, and, you know, saying that the European is the the sight man or the eye man and the black man at the bottom is the skin man. And in between are different other kind of racial groups that he's identified and equated with a particular sense that dominates their consciousness. consciousness. Um, and so that kind of, again, changes once psychophysics enters the scene and once racial difference sort of keeps being driven inwards and inwards within scientific discourses to, again, to perceptual sensitivity. So it becomes less the sense organs themselves and perceptual sensitivity as this kind of top-down kind of mode of hierarchizing uh, racial groups based on their sensitivity capacities. Um, at the same time, you know, we can sort of see how then there's this aesthetics from below, but I also before I get to that, I just want to point out that aesthetics itself, right, which was formulated... Uh, in the 18th century as the science of sensitive knowing is itself something of a racial science, right? So psychophysics, we sort of see how perceptual sensitivity develops into this program of sensitivity training that hierarchizes racial groups based on this innate capacity, um, which is thought to facilitate evolutionary processes and racial perfection. But this sensitivity training isn't simply an outgrowth of 18th century aesthetics as this program of cultivating the soul. And in fact, I think what psychophysics shows us is that aesthetics, what aesthetics always was, which is this racial science of sensitive knowing, right? That not all, it's not all that different from, aesthetics doesn't look all that different from phrenology or comparative anatomy, except instead of taxonomizing and hierarchizing racial groups according to physical features, it operates at the level of consciousness 
via these micro perceptions. So in sensitivity training specifically, we see this kind of top down kind of effort um, to, to rethink aesthetics um, as sort of the basis for organizing different kinds of groups. So aesthetic judgment now becomes basically a means of, again, hierarchizing uh, these, these racial groups, you know, according to the broadly sort of white supremacist ideology. At the same time, then, we, what psychophysics makes possible, even as it becomes the basis for that kind of reorganization of aesthetics as a sort of racial science here, it also makes possible, um, it, I would say what it does is it kind of empiricizes aesthetics. Um, it tries to lodge the sensory body um, at the very core of what judgments about beauty and pleasure are apart from the kind of evolutionary racial science kind of appropriation of, uh, of psychophysics. So aesthetics from below, right, is this idea developed by Fechner when he was going around uh, visiting museums in the 1870s and 1860s, surveying, you know, just like a social scientist, surveying museum goers about their emotional um, and sensory responses to color, line, form, and from there developing a theory of aesthetics based on those sensory responses, as opposed to the sort of Kantian, more speculative tradition of aesthetics that we, that we think of, which is that, you know, beauty and pleasure in the 18th, 19th century are derived from these ideals of truth and beauty and, and you know, the moral good. But Beckner is effectively trying to shift the grounds from speculation to a kind of empirical uh, model of feeling and using that as a kind of quote unquote grassroots or bottom up model of what aesthetic pleasure and feeling is based in the body itself. Right. That's actually a great segue into talking about uh, the site chapter, the, the first chapter here, um, Fechner's heavenly vision, right. And connecting that to uh these other developments at the time, including these sort of spiritualism and, and uh, these kinds of new developments of, of photography, right? So um, mm-hmm. how, how, can, how does psychophysics help us understand these discussions, even now when it comes to, to phantom limbs, but particularly um, in the 19th century thinking about phantom limbs and disability and photography. So what is so interesting about phantom limbs as they're effectively identified by this nerve specialist, um, S. Ware Mitchell, right? We sort of, especially those who are, you know, steeped in science and, and medical history, think of Mitchell. When we think of Mitchell, we think of, uh, the rest cure that he had developed, the notorious rest cure he had developed for um, nerve disorders like neurasthenia that, that plagued uh, white bourgeois women. But Mitchell had, of course, he'd identified the phantom limb around the Civil War um, in his work with um, amputees at the hospitals. The phantom limb is such an interesting case study in thinking about what psychophysics kind of brings to our understanding of race and disability in this moment. Um, because it effectively operates 
as this kind of quote unquote occult kind of theory um, that Mitchell in particular as this kind of self-styled, you know, man of modern science um, can't not think outside of. So it's sort of this theory of life that he has to engage with in order to understand this phenomena or condition, the phantom limb. Um, But thinking with psychophysics always threatens to kind of undo the scientific empiricism that he's advancing. So it's sort of what it nicely points up, I think, what psychophysics points up is the way that, especially in the 19th century, the construction of the quote-unquote occult, which gets associated with spiritualism, this religious and reform movement um, predicated on the idea that the living can communicate with the non-living. Um, and, and Fechner, as I discuss in the book, um, he develops this uh, kind of like a, a theology, effectively. Um, he writes this theological tract called The Little Book of Life, Life After Death um, that grounds this idea of kind of an interlocking soul system. The universe is comprised of interlocking soul systems that are material and embodied, but irreducible to biology or the biological more broadly. Um, And so it makes room for phenomena that um, would otherwise kind of escape the kind of positivistic drive of science um, in this moment. And so psychophysics kind of functions as this kind of, quote unquote, occult outlier um, for men of medicine like Mitchell, um, because it's sort of in excess of of empiricism in a certain way. Fechner is really interested in thinking about what empiricism can't fully account for, what exceeds the visual, right? So the crisis of the visual in the 19th century um, which comes to us via Helmholtz and his work, um, you know, in ophthalmology and revealing that eyesight is actually rife with all sorts of uh, problems and inaccuracies, that there's a whole world out there that the human eye can't see. And that in addition, um, you know, with uh, new theories about light waves and ether, in fact, it might be the invisible world that is subordinate over the the visible world, right? So there becomes this kind of world of ethereal beings um, that's sort of presented to the public and scientists alike in a new way in the 19th century. Um, And people don't know quite what to make of that. And for spiritualists, this seems to be scientific proof that souls perhaps um, have a kind of material ontology. Helmholtz was, before he did his work in ophthalmology, uh, made a name for himself as developing the first law of thermodynamics, right? Which is that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Um, It changes form. And so Fechner was actually one of the first to kind of take up Helmholtz's theories. He kind of sort of incorporated thermodynamics into his own kind of theological tract this particular book, uh, The Book of Life After Death, to suggest that souls effectively... Um, abide by the law of thermodynamics that all life does, that a soul is simply life on physical earth that is simply changed form, right? And now it's energy um, and not a kind of visible matter. Um, And so for 
folks like Mitchell working on the phantom limb, um, the spiritualists who take up Fechner's ideas become a real problem for him. But as the name phantom limb suggests, um, Mitchell can't think outside of the kind of spiritualism that he's really actually trying to denigrate. So how do you prove something as a kind of scientific fact without, in fact, um, sounding like the quote unquote non-scientific spiritualists that you're trying to separate your science from? Um, So psychophysics um, and Fechner's theory of heavenly vision in particular um, starts to act as something like the kind of transcendental surplus of science. Um, I'm thinking actually, um, if you don't mind a slight tangent, um, there's this, uh, book by, uh, Abigail Dumas, um, called, uh, Divided Bodies. And it's actually a 21st, so she's looking at 21st century biomedicine, um, and how medically unexplained illnesses are kind of baked into, uh, biomedicine. They're not, they're not the exception, but the actual rule of biomedicine, because once, um, you know, like biomedicine is kind of powered by evidence-based medicine, which is this epistemic framework that kind of values and hierarchies medical knowledge around randomized clinical uh, trials. Um, So by delimiting what counts as objectively significant or meaningful data, you're kind of therefore producing a whole range of bodily conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, um, as inexplicable and therefore unmedicalizable. And so we actually see something like that happening in the 19th century with phantom limbs um, coming at the precise moment that science starts to become professionalized, specialized, but also secularized, um, which is another way of saying that the that science was never was actually never secularized, right? It's always haunted by what it's trying to sort of separate itself from, um, like scientific efforts to debunk mesmerism, um, as Emily Ogden has shown, only ever reinforces the impossibility of debunking it. So psychophysics is in one sense kind of highly doctrinaire in its empiricism when we think about trying to quantify and measure sensory experiences, but yet it also takes seriously what empiricism, especially visual observation, Uh, can't account for, which would be body parts or bodies that uh, are not visible, but materially felt and there, like the phantom limb. Um, So it sort of points to the kind of the speculativeness of all science um, in a certain way. So that's sort of how psychophysics, which sort of is built around this crisis of seeing in the 19th century, kind of mobilizes um, alternate epistemologies that uh, you know, that nerve specialists and neurologists, the newly professionalized class of scientists like Mitchell, uh, have a hard time reconciling themselves with. Absolutely. Um, and what I, one of the many things I liked about your book uh, would be these sections you call intervals in between the chapters. And uh, what I like about that in particular is that you have the chapters divided by sense, but these intervals help to think about these senses together at certain points. Um, so I was wondering if you want to uh, just say anything about the way that you organize the book in this fashion, or if you wanted to say something in particular about colorful, colorful sounds, the first interval and thinking about both seeing and hearing as uh, chapter two is about sound. Yeah, so the the synesthetic intervals um, were something that 
occurred to me um, early on um, as I was thinking about the book and wanting to, you know, study psychophysics on its own terms, which meant studying each sense distinctly. But then also, you know, my concern was effectively reproducing the kind of anthropocentric as well as white supremacist construct of the five senses um, as, as, as such. Um, and so I think precisely because, again, to return to one of those weird origins of the book, um, Galton initially had been after synesthesia and studying the place of synesthesia um, and the development of racial groups. Um, it seemed both historically, um, but also conceptually uh, worthwhile um, to to have these kinds of intervals dedicated to thinking about how synesthesia was really part of the broader psychophysical project um, of studying these processes of racialization at the level of uh, perception. And so with the first interval in particular, colorful sounds, you know, what I'm looking at there is the way that there's sort of this, there's a real fantasy built around synesthesia when Fechner had studied it. Um, but it wasn't until Galton published his work on synesthesia that it really sort of came to light. And in fact, I think that people often point to Galton as sort of the kind of quote unquote founder or discoverer of synesthesia, but that's only because um, Fechner's book, Introduction to Aesthetics, has yet to be translated into English. So <laughs> once it's translated into English, I think people will realize that Fechner was on it first. Galton uh, directly copied Fechner in his experiments on synesthesia. But um, in any case, so there is a real fantasy, right, that that emerges around Galton's um, work on synesthesia, this fantasy of kind of um, harmonious sensations, harmony with the universe. I mean, you have, of course, prior to Galton, you know, Baudelaire's poetry, um, Rimbaud's poem, Voyelle, um, you know, that basically, I mean, a number of people have pointed that poem as also kind of creating this explosion of interest in synesthesia. Synesthesia is so interesting because it truly straddles kind of aesthetic or literary and then scientific um, domains to the point that you will find definitions of synesthesia in, you know, the, um, I don't know, broad view pocket glossary of literary terms and in the, you know, handbook of neuroscience and cognition, you know, both these scientific and literary handbooks both define the term and both cite Baudelaire <laughs> as somehow advancing knowledge. And so I think it's really important to think about how inextricably tethered um, science and literature and art are when it comes to synesthesia because it requires description. It requires narration and subjective description. You can't study synesthesia from the outside. You can't study any of the sense perceptions really, right, quote unquote, from the outside. There's no, quote unquote, objective means of doing so. So it relies upon first person narration and description. And so with colorful sounds, um, it points to the specific um, phenomenon of colored audition, which is what it was called at the time, or color hearing, which really sort of, um, of the various kinds of synesthetic combinations that might arise, colored hearing seemed to be the most dominant, at least in the medical and um, 
literary uh, literature um, of the area. And so there are efforts, um, widespread efforts at the time to actually create perhaps an organ or some kind of musical instrument that could combine sound with color. And the controversy at the time was whether this is a sign of human advancement and evolution, a more perfect art, or if it is a sign of degeneracy. And so this, you know, quickly falls into debates, you know, we've got social critics and physicians like Max Nordau on the one hand saying that synesthesia, you know, um, the kind of uh, indiscriminate mixing of sensations uh, is linked with lower life forms like the mollusks. So therefore, you know, uh, colored hearing and the adjacent art of colored music is but, you know, pushing European civilization backwards and a sign of devolution. Um, but then you have Rimbaud and other artists kind of trying to push it forward and say, no, actually, this is going to be an instrument um, of racial progress and species progress. And they never get resolved, these debates. But I think it's you know worth dwelling on the fact that synesthesia is so crucial to how people at this time were understanding the human as such and the place of the human in the, in the environment and in the, in the world itself. Yeah, so that nicely leads into the chapter on sound. Um, and as both a musician and a socialist, I particularly like this chapter. Um, so there's there's a, a really interesting connection you make between the sort of um, psychophysical acoustics that Helmholtz is, is exploring and investigating here uh, at the time and relatedly related to that being uh, these various utopian um, literatures. And so, you know, I I think you make an excellent point here. This is on uh, page 89. You you write, uh, once integrated into evolutionary discourse, psychophysical acoustics joins eugenics in conflating social progress with species progress and the cultivation of the soul with the fitness of the body. So such a linkage here seems to me to um, be a means of basically what you call uh, uh, sonic segregation or or, um, to take from another scholar, the sonic color line. Um, But with Helmholtz, he's talking about, or at least at this time, talking about uh, the mental ear and the sensitive ear. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that difference and how it, how it relates to not only how Helmholtz was thinking about sound and social progress, but how other thinkers and and artists at the time were thinking about this connection. Yeah. So, so broadly speaking, um, what the book tracks is this kind of project that I call psychophysical aesthesis. So aesthesis is the sort of etymological root of aesthetics that means sensory faculty. And so aesthesis is meant to signal Fechner's broad project of aesthetics from below, right? This embodied aesthetics and aesthetics that is kind of imminent at the level of sensation. So it's not as if sensation is simply a springboard for kind of transcendental feeling, but it actually resides within the body and stays there. And so the example of Helmholtz's psychophysical acoustics in particular is really useful because he 
in his book uh, this, on the sensation of tone, which is itself a massive book. I, I can't, I mean, Helmholtz is just a phenomenal figure, of course, in the 19th century. I mean, he did so much. But so in On the Sensations of Tone, he says specifically there's this problem. And the problem is that we are separating physical acoustics, which looks at the properties of sound as such, and then physiological acoustics, which is sound as it relates to the capacity for human hearing. So physical acoustics is not reliant upon our human's ability to hear Right. Whereas physiological acoustics is focused on the human ear itself. So he says the problem is that we've sort of separated these two kinds of acoustics from musical aesthetics. Right. That, and so he really kind of wonderfully, you know, tries to integrate the two and says that we can't understand how hearing works outside of music and musical development and the development of musical systems over time in history. And we can, and we also need to think about music in terms of how it physiologically works at an acoustic level. Um, there's a really great book um, that I want to plug here by Alexandra Hui. Uh, her last name is spelled H-U-I, um, called "The Psychophysical Ear," and she, she's a musicologist, I believe, um, and she is it's, it's focused almost explicitly on Helmholtz, but Helmholtz was himself kind of an amateur musician. Um, and he, you know, she sort of relates how his own kind of place in bourgeois German society, how that was sort of brought to bear on his, his theory of hearing and music. But in any case, what Humboldt's does is develop in trying to fuse aesthetics with acoustics into what I would call aesthesis. Um, he develops this theory of hearing as relational, um, Right. So that sound is not something produced in a particular body. Sound is what is produced between two elastic bodies, two elastic or flexible bodies. And that hearing moves along kind of three, this kind of like three part trajectory. Right. So first there's what he calls the physical or the material ear, which is when the ear receives sound um, and kind of is able to kind of um, respond at the level of the nerves to particular tones. Some are amplified, some are muted. And then there's the psychological or the mental ear, which kind of at an unconscious level um, synthesizes those distinct tones into a compound sign that we would call a sound, basically. Um, and then there's the psychophysical or what I call the sensitive ear, which is the ear that you can train. So it's the idea that you can train your ear to actually disaggregate that compound sign back into particular kinds of tones. And therefore, again, to go back to this notion of perceptual sensitivity, you can then um, kind of mark and parse and respond to particular gradations and tones of sound, um, which then becomes this basis of a kind of aesthetic feeling that can then help, you know, the, the perceiving subject navigate the world better. So that then kind of, I also want to stress how kind of foundational and paradigm shifting Helmholtz's musical, or I'm sorry, psychophysical acoustics was. Um, it was very quickly taken up in the American scientific and general periodical press. Um, and so there are, you know, writers specifically that I talk about, Edward Bellamy and Pauline Hopkins in particular, who, you know, I was not able to find any kind of direct 
link in which it was made clear that they had read on the sensations of tone. However, Helmholtz's work so saturated uh, cultural life that they were kind of using that vocabulary and using those concepts, uh, whether or not they were sort of conscious of it. So in Hopkins in particular, we see Hopkins is an African-American singer herself, um, a writer, an editor, an activist. And so in her kind of utopian fiction, we see how she uses this idea of the sounding body as an elastic body, um, as a way for rethinking Black kinship, especially um, the, kin- the Black kinship uh, severed by slavery, um, not at the level of genealogy or biology per se, but actually at the level of consciousness. So how might this sensitive ear being able to um, mark gradations of sound and tone through hearing, but then also refining the voice according to that sensitivity, how does that make possible connections across time and space that might kind of uh, reconstellate and reorganize uh, Black, Black kinship ties? And so with Hopkins, it's really interesting, as is as it is with Bellamy, because they're sort of caught between, on the one hand, the kind of biological and for both eugenic kind of imperatives of racial perfection, but they're also trying to reconceive a utopian domain in which there's these sort of transcendental connections. So the, the question then is, how do we think about a kind of utopian community of a kind of transcendent pure being, but while that pure being retains its racial purity. Um, and again, that's, that's not a question that's really answered in the text, but you see these, you know, these writers trying to work through what psychophysics and specifically psychophysical acoustics might mean for um, sociality and social community and making it more perfect. Absolutely. And then, Moving on to the second interval, uh, briefly, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the odophone and, and melodic perfumes, which I just, I never heard of. I, I thought it was such a fantastic uh, little piece here. And the there's a, a wonderful figure of the art of perfumery and, and uh, showing the notes that link up to particular scents. Um, so in thinking about this connection between sense and music how else did this sort of reify racial difference um, in particular so yeah the the odophone is sort of amazing um and it's so interesting to see how people working in perfumery especially um the particular perfumer who had developed this odophone uh gw septimus piece um using music as, you know, the status of music as a fine art, right, Um, as a way to legitimize smell. So, you know, he's using music, the musical scale as a way to sort of authorize thinking about smell as itself an art. And the problem that we see with that is that smell constantly is sort of returning, or certainly in the cultural imaginary, keeps returning to this notion of body odor and specifically racial odor, um, which is this idea um, going back to Jefferson and probably before that, but a very classic sort of like racial science notion that 
uh, particular racial groups have a kind of innate odor. So there's this friction between, you know, on the one hand, this effort to turn smell again into this sort of advanced art and doing so by thinking about it as music. And so with Sadakichi Hartman, I mean, who's such a fascinating figure, he was sort of a secretary to Walt Whitman, a poet himself and a critic. You know, he tries to develop this perfume concert, you know, um, where, where he, I mean, he does psychophysical, he's, he's doing psychophysical experiments. He, you know, drenches these kind of like large cheesecloths in particular sense and asks his friends, you know, in the auditorium to say exactly when they start to smell this trace scent of perfume. Um, and so, you know, he tries to put on this, uh, this olfactory concert, this perfume concert um, in the early 20th century that sort of is a spectacular failure for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it sort of shows this effort to kind of combine. So the, the concert itself is called A Trip to Japan in 16 Minutes. And so it really wonderfully shows this effort to combine, you know, kind of this kind of exotic geographical trip and make it internal, right? So you're moving outwards in space across the globe, but audiences are also meant to move inwards uh, closer to their own desires and also um, for Hartman, their own kind of Orientalist um, desires as well. So even the effort to kind of elevate smell to an art by falling back on the abstractions of music um, ends up constantly kind of falling back onto uh, sort of racialized kind of uh, differences and configurations um, as, as Hartman shows. Right. And moving on to the chapter on smell, uh, we see this tension between biology and chemistry of smell, right? We have these new uh, developments in chemistry to develop uh, perfumes. And along these lines, we see both, free floating odors as a, as a issue related to sexual and racial differences, well as this smell of segregation, this, this olfactory segregation or, or, or thinking about the smell of civilization here. So um, thinking through not just, um, not just the, the work of uh, psychophysicists, but also the works by James Weldon Johnson, or uh, you also talk about the awakening. So what does this chapter tell us about this connection between sense and, and racial difference, especially thinking about racial odor, as, as you put it? Yeah, so here is where I think it's more clear that what we're seeing in American contexts is the migration of psychophysics from the laboratory to sort of quote unquote amateur or vernacular domains of scientific experimentation, right? So in the, in particular with chemistry, with perfumery, right? It's a branch of chemistry, but now it's the perfumer's lab, which is effectively the cosmetician at this point, right? That is becoming the psychophysical, the domain of psychophysical research in which to concoct new perfumes increasingly means to kind of experiment with how one might elicit um, memories, desires, longings um, through particular chemical compounds, right? So again, it comes down to what is that kind of correlation or correspondence between 
stimulus and sensation between physical matter and then kind of inner longings. And that plays out, um, I think, really wonderfully in Chopin's and James Weldon Johnson's um, novels, where we see how that those longings and desires are always refracted through smells that are linked to racial odor in, in one way or another, right? So with Chopin, you know, you've got this novel that's organized around the figure of the new woman, right? The, the white bourgeois woman who kind of delays marriage and motherhood or rejects it all together. Right. Um, and so for, so in the awakening, you know, we see how particular kinds of scents and perfumes are used both to diffuse um, just disperse kind of erotic longing outside of what for the heroine Edna Pontelier is kind of the uh, constrictions of matrimony or the matrimonial dyad. Um, but that always kind of, again, is routed through the racial odor of the perceived racial odor of the black or mixed race woman um, in her novel. Um, and so Edna's kind of the sort of the famous last line of the novel in which she smells musky pinks, you know, that musk is is sort of an index of racial difference. The pinks, the flower is that kind of floral femininity that gets constructed. And so that kind of it's kind of an impossible embodiment that Edna desires that that smell kind of marks. Whereas with James Walton Johnson, um, his novel Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man is entirely kind of haunted by the smell of the lynching that the narrator witnesses. And so I sort of track how we can see the smells that are kind of diffused and dispersed throughout Chopin's novel take on a far more um, uh, disturbing kind of tone uh, with Johnson. The new woman, you know, is sort of an eroticized figure surrounded by perfumes, uh, very sort of abstract, unisex, daring perfumes constantly, um, especially in the sort of the Art Nouveau um, depictions of the time. You've got the new woman, you know, with her cigarette, with um, smoking, the kind of erotic phallic image. Johnson is sort of looking at the underbelly of that, right? Whose bodies um, must be kind of extracted and made disposable in order to produce particular kinds of scents. Um, and certain kinds of uh, smells. And for Johnson, of course, that would be the black man's body um, as the lynching register. So you get kind of with Chopin and uh, Johnson, you know, you get this idea about the way that scent and perfume at this particular moment operate at the nexus of intoxication, erotic intoxication, but then also actual toxicity um, and ultimately death. The next interval goes over, uh, it's an incredible discussion of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's um, yellow wallpaper. Um, and then you move on to talk about specifically taste, and uh, which, which you say is, is different from the previous senses, and it's a mode of feeling so contained as to be seemingly self-enclosed, as you put it. Um, but you also hear talk about taste in a very particular way by talking about the civilizing projects of both gastronomy and culinary science. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on these science, how they, how they developed, 
and and perhaps and some connection to psychophysics, but also how it's it re-entrenched uh, racial difference, thinking about uh, particular foods and recipes connected to particular time and places, uh, thinking about colonization and slavery in particular. So, yeah, what, what can you tell us about these uh, new sciences at the time? Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things with gastronomy, right, um, I think this happens so much in like the 18th and 19th centuries that these sciences um, look a lot like aesthetics and look like a lot like art projects. Um, so gastronomy, right, was, I think, developed really most sort of forcefully um, by Briar Savarin in the 1820s. Um, he wrote uh, The Physiology of Taste. And so he there, you know, is sort of developing gastronomy as a science of eating based on not simply the presentation of food, but the idea that one must extract maximal aesthetic pleasure from what, whatever it is one is eating, right? And so that there should be a specific kind of order and logic to the presentation of courses and dishes. So he places taste, sensory taste, at the center of that sort of scientific project of civilizing taste, right? So if there is ultimately no real difference to be made when it comes to, um, if taste suggests that, well, all animals, right, have to eat and must taste in order to survive, right? You turn then taste into gastronomy as a way to elevate taste as a sense, but also effectively elevate the human over the animal world because animals, Fabrias Severan and others, you know, can't be gourmands. So it's it's a way to sort of assert right human superiority. Um, culinary science emerges out of kind of the domestic economy, domestic sciences of the early 19th century, but it really takes hold at the end of the 19th century, and it completely takes taste out of the equation. Right? It is it's all about kind of nutrition efficiency, um, and it's also about effectively wiping away the folk knowledges. Um, of women, especially immigrant women, um, African-American women, by, you know, it's an Americanizing, whitewashing kind of project. Um, so it's all about reproducing. It's, it, it, and it fashions itself, of course, as a science about being able to reproduce dishes um, as a chemist would reproduce particular kinds of concoctions based on a specific kind of recipe um, following measurements. This is when you've got Fanny Farmer um, who was uh, called the mother of, le- of uh, level me- measurements um, with her cooking schools. Uh, the Boston Cooking School in particular is a way to get, you know, immigrant women and other non-white women um, to sort of shed their own kinds of local tastes and food waste in, in favor of effectively really bland <laughs> uh, New England food um, and calling that Americanization. So those, so gastronomy and culinary science uh, represent kind of two sides of the same kind of racializing coin. One is that uh, there are racialized peoples who do not have the capacity for taste that gastronomy is sort of attempting to cultivate. The other side is that racial, there are racializing people who need to be taught this culinary science because they are not, you know, intuitively, uh, quote unquote, science minded. And will only just cook from taste, and therefore that if they only cook based on their taste and don't cook based on measurements, uh, what that will lead to is gluttony and sloth 
um, and all sorts of vices that will not uh, lend themselves well to uh, capitalist productivity uh, in the market. So they are effectively two sides of the same coin. And we sort of see how the kind of tension between gastronomy and culinary science gets played out um, with uh, recipes, especially as I sort of track them, recipes for this dessert called black cake, which um, comes out of the West Indies and was effectively a kind of English pudding or fruit cake that was adapted by the enslaved people on the sugar plantations of the islands. And then um, as this kind of holiday cake, um, rich with rum and brown sugar, molasses, and that sort of moves uh, northwards up through the United States and starts circulating in cookbooks, um, uh, especially white author cook authored cookbooks. Um, and so I look at how those recipes kind of change over time, but also change based on who's who's putting out the recipes. So Melinda Russell, for instance, uh, was a freed woman who put out a cookbook recipe just for desserts. And in there is the black cake. And so it's sort of interesting to think about how black women in particular start using black cake uh, the black cake recipe as a way to kind of experiment with thinking about like black subjectivity and pleasure beyond the bounds of a kind of respectability, pro uh, respectability politics, which would have been based on a kind of culinary science ethos that taste is a vector of erotic pleasure that needs to be kind of controlled. Um, you know, what does it mean to think about taste and sweetness in particular as a vehicle um, of pushing past that kind of respectability and thinking about the kind of uh, sensory but also aesthetic lawlessness, as it were, um, of sweetness for racialized bodies uh, like Russell's. So to sort of wrap up our discussion here, I was wondering in your chapter before the coda on touch, we get some uh, really interesting discussion on, on Helen Keller in particular, but thinking about this idea of double sensation and Du Bois' double consciousness, I was wondering, what can you tell us about how touch was thought about during this time um, and how it related to uh, not just Helen Keller and, and uh, understandings of disability, but also uh, what this had to do with the new psychology at the time and Du Bois's um, sort of uh, attempt here to, to bridge some of these ideas. Yeah. So, okay. So double sensation is a term that Keller doesn't use. It's, I, I sort of import it from Merleau-Ponty, you know, who uh, describes touch, right? It's double sensation is this feeling of being touched and being touched object and subject at the same time. So I, I'm, I th I'm, fairly invested in thinking about Keller is actually kind of like Merleau-Ponty before Merleau-Ponty um, as, as thinking about her autobiographical writings as this arena in which she is genuinely elaborating this kind of early fem phenomenological theory of touch of subjectivity via touch. Um, and so touch for the new psychologists was the sense that was kind of a marker. I mean, people were so interested, the new psychologists were so interested in blind and deaf subjects like Keller precisely because the question was how does consciousness possibly, how can it possibly become fully formed and take shape in the absence of the two most quote unquote civilized rational senses? So what does consciousness look like when it is created only through contact 
with the outside world, right? If vision and hearing are considered kind of vectors of a kind of deep interiority, um, what happens then when in the absence of those senses, you've got a consciousness and a person that's shaped only through external touch and contact, right? Who's all surface, but no interiority. Um, and so they they take Keller, as they did with um, Laura Bridgman, who was also blind and deaf. Um, and she was sort of a celebrity in the mid-19th century um, under the tutelage of a reformer named Samuel Gridley Howe. Um, and so Bridgman was also an object of real curiosity, but she sort of, she passed away just as the new psychology was taking rise. And that is also when this new psychology was on the rise is when Helen Keller kind of came to the scene um, in the late 1880s, early um, 1890s. And so for the new psychologists, it really became, she was such an interesting subject because they could then test her reactions to particular kind of tactile stimuli and invented all sorts of contraptions to do this in order to kind of discern um, the, the limits of what consciousness and selfhood really is. Are you a self if you're only composed of surface contact was sort of the broad question that they were after. Um, and so Keller then, you know, effectively talks back or speaks back to her kind of positioning as this object of medical study um, through her autobiographical writings. And we sort of see how she's playing with touch as this double sensation by saying, you know, effectively, we are all more or less composed of surface contact with the world. Um, you can't plagiarize a, a consciousness. Um, you know, there are no such things as original thoughts anyway. So even if all my thoughts come through the medium of the skin and the flesh, um, that's no different, really. Um, than how the, the formation of consciousness is for those who are sighted and hearing. So for Du Bois, this is really interesting because he, you know, again, he was, of course, at Harvard working under James. James was fairly fascinated by Keller. James and Keller didn't um, write a lot to each other, but they, they did exchange some letters. Um, and in the 1890s, I believe um, when Keller would, was at the Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown, Massachusetts, um, James took his psychology class, which at that point included Du Bois on a little uh, field trip from uh, Cambridge to Watertown um, and visited Keller. So right there, just in that moment, we had, it's very clearly marked that Keller is kind of this object of study for, uh, for the new psychologists. And Du Bois had said decades later that, you know, this kind of chance meeting with Keller um, really got him thinking about what we today we would call color blindness, right? He sort of has this kind of romantic account or romanticized account of like, oh, here's this blind and deaf girl who can't possibly be racist because she can't see. And what would it mean to, you know, um, interact with the world and interact with people only through the skin? Um, and so in his own writing, specifically The Souls of Black Folk, and it's sort of just interesting to note that his kind of, The Souls of Black Folk, this experimental kind of autobiography of a people came, comes out in the exact same time that Heller's, Helen, Hel I'm sorry, Helen Keller's um, autobiography did. Um, but there, you know, that's where he sort of, again, develops this theory of double consciousness, right? Feeling, um, experiencing yourself through the eyes or more broadly the sensorium um, of white Americans. 
And so double consciousness then starts to look a little different when we think about it less through the kind of visual modality um, and more through a kind of tactile or even kind of haptic modality, right? Where we understand that, you know, double consciousness is effectively on a continuum with Helen Keller's own kind of development of touch as a double sensation, right? In which being subject and object simultaneously um, is a new kind of model of selfhood. Um, you know, it's a model of selfhood that's permeable and porous, that's elastic, right? Um, and so that kind of accords with Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, right? As this mode of perception that is born of, you know, structural oppression, but also as he frames it is a kind of gift, right? He calls it a second sight. And so we can think about Keller as kind of theorizing touch as this kind of second sight, as it were. Right. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I just had a couple quick questions for you. So one, thinking about the CODA um, chapter here, thinking about after psychophysics and sensory studies today, um, what, what do you hope you, the audience reading this book, what do you hope they come away from thinking through these issues and applying them to topics today? I mean, you, you do use the example of ultrasound, but um, I was wondering if you had any uh, final thoughts about that. Well, I hope that, you know, uh, readers would sort of walk away with an understanding of how sensation operates as this vector of racialization, but at such a micro scale that, you know, I think it's important to think about how the narratives and theories we have of what we would call a kind of racial consciousness emerge out of the psychophysical science and philosophy that attempts to understand subjectivity from the inside at a sort of embodied rather than kind of more idealist um, level. And so, yeah, with the ultrasounds, I think what's so interesting is the way that they, they so kind of wonderfully kind of mirror spirit photography um, in their own way. Um, right. These are sort of images of beings that are, are barely visible uh, but they're sort of ghosts of the future instead of ghosts of the past. And the way that the very category of the human um, kind of gets both reflected and refracted at this kind of micro level of the barely visible. And so I think in the broader kind of understanding of how affect gets theorized as a sort of the kind of more post-humanist and Deleuzian model, right, as um, as a kind of continuum or flow that operates at a kind of pre-conscious level, right? That that is always elaborated still at the level of the body and that, you know, we risk that kind of abstraction um, sometimes. But psychophysics, I think, offers a model for understanding those affective responses and capacities that entangle particular objects and things and beings, you know, is operating at this kind of micro level of perception. Um, and that that is completely at the racial body and racial differences at the center of how we understand consciousness, that, that isn't just about consciousness um, as applied to kind of racial or subject formations, that racial difference is at the core 
of how we understand how consciousness works effectively. So that would be sort of the bigger takeaway. Yeah, that's so important. Um, thank you again so much for being here with us. Before we go, uh, do you want to let the audience know what you're working on now? Do you have another project coming up? Yeah, there are a few, a couple of things I'm working on. One is actually sort of an elaboration of um, the kind of prenatal ultrasounds that I talk about um, in the coda. So I sort of want to flesh that out as that were a bit more and thinking about uh, the place of medicine, science and technology in the production of the human, but also thinking about the ultrasound in particular as this kind of object um, around which lots of uh, around which the uh, sex gender binary um, system uh, gets kind of constellated um, and really with horrible effects on the environment as per the, all the California wildfires that have been started by these gender reveal parties um, that the ultrasounds make possible. But um, I want to think about them uh, in terms of race as well. How do these kind of objects circulate um, as part of uh, these? In, in the broader processes of racialization that we see, we, we again think of the, these ultrasounds as kind of outside or existing outside of racialization, in part because they don't uh, make visible skin color and partly because we, we look for gender instead. But so I'm sort of interested in thinking about what happens when we look for race there. Um, and then I've got another uh, project that's in development that comes out of my work um, on touch and color and the haptic. And so I sort of like to think about um, the rise of what I call craft epistemologies um, in the 19th century and thinking about um, tactile haptic kind of ways of knowing that get sort of developed in the 19th century, um, especially as it kind of gets activated um, around uh, the development um, of braille and other embossed print systems uh, for blind readers. So sort of what happens to um, theories of knowledge? How do they change when touch um, comes to the fore in the 19th century, in the 19th century in ways that it hadn't quite done before? So those are the, those are the things I'm thinking about these days. Excellent. Yeah. Those sound like great projects. Uh, I just wanted to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, I hope we get to talk again soon. Great. Thank you so much, CJ.